0: is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Double Century on the 99.94 Podcast Network. That's typical. That's going to go over the field and will just carry over the ropes for four. He's a no-nonsense sort of player, Davidson. That's why he's been sent to open. Magnificent blow that's gone for six. That's another one gone away for four just inside the boundary. This is magnificent batting. He's taken the West Indies on here and he's winning. There is a pinch hitter opening the batting in the 2003 World Cup. You can hear clearly that he is completely smashing the West Indies including a huge six over cover, back when that wasn't so common. The other thing that wasn't really that common is that this is a Canadian batter. It has been 24 years since they were last in the World Cup, and that time they lost all three of their matches and only made it to that tournament due to some luck in the qualifiers where Sri Lanka had reigned and they also forfeited a game against Israel. This is all different. Their first game was against the new Test Nation, Bangladesh, and they won it as Austin Codrington, a seam bowler with dreadlocks, took 5 for 27. Not that it was all smooth sailing. They fight, but lose against Kenya, who will go on to have the greatest World Cup of any associate team ever. But while the African nation might end up being the star of this tournament, for a little while, it was Canada. So it didn't look that way when Sri Lanka overrun them, bowling them out for only 36. At that point, it was the lowest ODI team total ever. And in their next game, no one is expecting anything from them when they go up against the West Indies. And then bang, whack, wallop. Canada, or at least one man, become the story. I'll let the late Robin Jackman describe it and give you his name. 94 he has. And he's hit it handsome will it reach the boundary yes it has he goes to 100 with the most magnificent six over mid on well played john davison very well played john davison was an average cricketer who moved from canada to victoria the australian victoria when he was very young For the Victorian Bush Rangers, he was an off-spinner who rarely played, and usually when he did, was pretty much used for his low economy, especially in the Red Bull game. When his Victorian career was petering out, he moved to South Australia, and still never really got the most out of himself. By 2003, outside of people like me who knew a lot about him, he was basically an unknown cricketer. And in this game against the West Indies, after four overs, Davidson is four runs from ten balls. It's early in the game, obviously, and the spectators are still settling down in Centurion. And then the game erupts, or Davison does. He hits Pedro Collins for a four and a six. In the next over, Mervyn Dillon for three consecutive four. In Dillon's following one, there is another four and another six. Baz Badrates comes on, and there is another six and another four. Davison is now 50 from 30 balls and he's not middle all of his shots, but such is his power, even his edges are flown over the infield. After 12 overs, Canada have lost just their first wicket and they are 96 runs. Davison is 72 from 43. Carl Hooper brings himself on. The change of pace and the new batter do slow down Canada, but not Davison. The 100 takes him 67 balls. As he brings that up, no player in the history of World Cups has ever scored a faster 100. A Canadian with the world's fastest 100 in a World Cup. It's incredible. Davison ultimately falls for 111. Canada are 156 for three. And this is just the 23rd over. You would think that they would go on to get well over 300. Not quite. They collapse in a heap. They end up at only 220. They lose their last three wickets in the last three balls. No one else reaches 20, and the West Indies romp to a win. But Davison and Canada have another shot, this time against New Zealand. Davison will hit 75 in 62 balls, but sadly again, the rest of his team doesn't stand up, and Canada only make 196. But now Davison opens to bowling. He takes the wickets of Craig McMillan, Nathan Astle, and Chris Cairns with his offspin. That's three pretty big names. New Zealand are 32 for three. But sadly, again, the rest of the team can't stand up, and New Zealand get home. Canada finished the tournament with one win. Davison has 226 runs at a strike rate of 119. No one has more runs and a better strike rate than him. Oh, and he also chipped in with 10 wickets. Four years later, Davison takes on New Zealand again, this time slamming a 50 in 23 balls. He hits eight fours in a 12-ball stretch from Michael Mason. And he's not done there. In 2004, Canada beats the USA in the ICC Intercontinental Cup. Davison gets a first innings of 84. But then he goes on to take 8 for 61 and 9 for 76. These are not merely the best first-class figures since Jim Laker. In the 250-year history of cricket, only Laker has taken more wickets in an 11-a-side first-class match. To date, Davison is only one of three men to have 500 runs, a strike rate over 100, and a bowling economy under 4.5. The real problem was that Davison wasn't tested enough because Canada did not play a lot of cricket. Outside the World Cup, they seldom played the top sides. In eight years, Davison played only 32 one-day internationals. Rizwan Chima, a beautiful striker of the ball, only played one more. He got 650s and had a strike rate of 111. Ashish Bagai got twice as many runs as any other Canadian and also was a keeper. He had two hundreds. Sunil Dunaram had 915 runs and 41 wickets. All of these guys were excellent cricketers who did not play enough for Canada. But weirdly enough, the history of Canadian cricket goes well beyond these particular players. In fact, the history of Canadian cricket goes before Canada was even a nation. And what a shot down the pitch and he's hit it right in the middle. Chamney knows he's putting his hands up. Look, he's so wrapped for his teammate, and there he is. What a knock! 67 balls, six sixes, seven fours, and has become equal the fourth fastest century in One Day International cricket. What an effort! By gee, what will he do now? How can he back that up? Make him Prime Minister. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends nine nineteen. No refunds. Subscription auto renews. This series of Double Century is about missed chances. The teams that got away. For the longest time, the narrative of cricket was that only the teams who ended up with test status actually loved the game. But there have been others that have shown that same passion, but who, for many varied reasons, did not move into the test game. In this episode, it's Canada who played cricket before they were a nation. They are one half of the oldest international sporting rivalry. They hosted a match at midnight in the 1890s, and they have, from time to time, pulled off some incredible upsets. Canada played the first ever international match against the USA in 1844. A two-innings game played for a wager of $1,000 where Manhattan is today. Canada won that match by 23 runs. It was attended by 5,000 people. They bet around $100,000 on the match. The USA side was basically the St. George's Club of New York, and Canada was essentially the Toronto Cricket Club. The two teams had played even earlier. In 1840, a man called Phil Potts had invited the Americans to Toronto to play a match. It turned out to be a hoax, but the men in Toronto turned out to be really nice. So they conjured up a team and they played for $250. As for that 1844 match... There was another game again in 1845 in McGill University in Montreal. Canada won this one as well by 62 runs. The two teams continued to meet after that. In 1854, Canadian fast bowler Joel Bradbury took nine wickets for six runs to bowl out the USA for 32. He took another four wickets in the second innings as well. He also opened the batting. When Canada and the USA play, it's for the KA Autie Cup, which is the longest running international contest in any sport. But the history of cricket in Canada goes back before the first international match. In 1785, cricket was played at Ily-Saint-Hélène, where the Montreal Exposition buildings stand today. In the early 1820s, two Royal Navy vessels, the HMS Fury and HMS Heckler, were trapped in ice near the island of Igloolik. The crew meticulously recorded meteorological data for a year. When they weren't doing that, they played cricket on ice. This was in North Canada, the sort of place that you've seen on a map but never had any thoughts of playing cricket in. In 1827, George Barker had founded the Toronto Cricket Club. He was a pioneer of Canadian cricketer. He was also the publisher of the Toronto Herald, a master at Upper Canada College, and the first superintendent of the common schools in Toronto. He played in that first ever international match in 1844. They still call him the father of Canadian cricket. In 1859, an England cricket team toured North America for the first time. It was a very strong side, consisting of contemporary stars like George Parr, Robert Carpenter, Julius Caesar, yep, that's a cricketer, John Lillywhite, H.A. Stevenson, and John Wisden. The English team played five matches against 22 member sides and won every one of them by huge margins. That's not completely surprising, though. That team was strong enough to beat pretty much any side in England as well. By the 1860s, there was even a cricket pitch in Riddle Hall, Canada's government house. The Dominion of Canada was created in 1867. John MacDonald, the first Prime Minister, declared cricket the national sport of Canada. In the 1870s, English and Australian teams toured Canada. Contemporary greats like W.G. Grace, Monkey Hornby, Fred Spofforth, and Charles Bannerman were part of those teams. It was also the decade when Jack Lang arrived. He was the first outstanding Canadian cricketer. Lang was fast, and he could swerve the ball. And in case you've missed this on some of the old episodes, swerve is what they used to call what we now call swing. Lang played for Canada against teams from Australia, England, Ireland, and the USA. Against the USA, he took 63 wickets in nine matches at an average of 7.18. Against Lord Hawke's Englishman, he took four for 47. Against the gentlemen of Ireland for 36. He failed only against Australia, but they were a full-strength side. These were international matches, even if we don't really refer to them these days as international matches. The first Canadian side crossed the Atlantic in 1887. Lang was not actually part of this side, which were called the Gentlemen of Canada. They took their time to adjust, but once they got legs under them, they beat a side called the Gentlemen of Derbyshire and another one called the Gentlemen of Warwickshire. Edward Ogden, the Canadian captain, was also their star player. From 18 matches, he made 701 runs an average of 23 and took 91 wickets at an average of 17. A few years later in 1892, the Canadian Cricket Association was founded. The USA versus Canada rivalry was on, but cricket was fast losing ground to baseball in North America. and as you've probably already noticed, baseball eventually won quite easily in the USA meaning that Canada didn't really have a local rival for them to play against. The only time they got great cricket was when teams would stop for a break journey, which is very similar to what would happen to Sri Lanka. On one of those tours, Lord Sheffield decided that the midnight sun of Spitsbergen, now Svalbard, was good enough for cricket. A match began at 11.45pm. There were about 40 people on the batting side, but the bowling side had Alfred Shaw, who, you may remember, bowled the first ball ever in test cricket. Despite the fact that there was 40 batters, Shaw got everyone out in about half an hour. Canadian interest in cricket certainly declined after the Great War, but occasional teams kept visiting. The most famous of those was in 1932-33, when Arthur Maley took a team that consisted of Vic Richardson, Alan Kippax, Stan McCabe, Chuck Fleetwood-Smith, Hanson Carter, and Don Bradman. You'd be surprised to note that Bradman averaged 102, and also took a hat-trick on that tour, In the summer of 1936, a team of Canadians toured England. They did not play the counties, but Ted Carlton took 5 for 32 when they beat the MCC at Lords in a one-innings match. That MCC side had three test players in it. Beating a team like that at their den should have been a milestone. Sadly, the win really had little impact on Canadian cricket. But they did continue to play, and in 1975, half of Canada beat a very strong side. Ian Chappell's Australians had won the Ashes at home, They were flying to England, where they would retain the Ashes again and reach the final of the World Cup. And yet en route, they lost to um, Eastern Canada, not even the full country. In this one-day one-innings match, the Australians were 88 for six before they were eventually bowled out for 159. Seam bowler Robert Callender and left-arm spinner Jitu Patel took four wickets each. It should be noted that the Australian team had Dennis Lilly at this point, and they also had Max Walker and Ian Higgs. But Vince Green and Brian Hale added 56 runs for the first wicket, and Franklin Dennis remained unbeaten on 57. Is Canada won in 42 overs? Lily bowled 16 overs but only took a single wicket. Of course, there was a bit of a catch. The Canadians had convinced the Australians to stay not at a hotel but an adjacent house. Many of the Aussies drank through the night before the match as some locals kept them company, but the Canadian cricketers went to bed extremely sober. Canada played in the World Cup four years later. As I said earlier, they were lucky to qualify, but they were still probably in the best three or four associate teams just outside of that top level. But sadly, after that tournament, we wouldn't see them for another 24 years. In the interim period, they kept appearing in ICC trophies and emerged as a neutral host for other nations, partly because so many expats from around the cricket world had moved to Canada. Canada. It started in 1989, a match between a star-studded West Indies and the rest of the World Eleven at the Toronto Sky Dome. The rest of the world was represented by seven countries and included Canadian opening bat Farouk Kamani. 40,000 spectators were a record for a cricket match in North America at that time. As the relations between India and Pakistan strained, the two teams stopped touring each other for a bilateral series. So in the late 1990s, Toronto hosted the Sahara Friendship Cup, a five-match bilateral ODI series for three consecutive years. Matches replete with quality cricket and controversies, perhaps now best known for Inzaman al-Haq being called Alu, which if you don't know, means potato. Early in the 21st century, Canada had a bit of a renaissance. They featured in three consecutive World Cups, largely helped by players like John Davison, Ariswan Shima and Ashish Bagai, who I mentioned earlier. Unfortunately, though, they didn't really replace any of those players, and eventually teams like Afghanistan and Ireland would take giant strides. Canada continued to fight with the USA and other North American sides in zonal qualifiers. It's also worth mentioning that they had their own global T20 league. Players like Kyron Pollard and Steve Smith and David Warner all played. However, in the second season, the players went on strike over a lack of payments, and that tournament hasn't come back since. Now there's a danger that they'll fall even further behind the USA, who are starting their own major league cricket. So we don't know what the future is for Canadian cricket, but we know about the past. And the national sport of Canada was once cricket. They are one of the first two international teams we ever had, and their history is incredibly strong. They played Bradman, Grace and Wisdom. Plus they beat a probably hungover Lily. And they have been to a lot of World Cups. And in the 60s and 70s, it seemed like a team that would certainly one day play test cricket. That hasn't happened. And in recent memory, they're almost as famous for Inzaman al-Haq being called a potato as they are for their own cricket. But the sport exists in Canada. And if people didn't remember that before the 2003 World Cup, John Davison gave them a very violent reminder. There he goes on the lakeside. What a shot this is. It's gone behind the roof. Take a while for the ball to come back, but this guy is a sensation. Another good selection, now this one is huge. I had a good look at it, it's hit nothing. It just landed into the practice area, I think. There's another ground there. It's a clean hit, that's hit, no obstruction. 69 for two. Double Century is a podcast on the 99.94 network. You can download our app via the show notes or look for us on social media to see all the podcasts and audio we produce. If you prefer your podcast ad-free, you can support us on Patreon to get that version. You can find the link in the show notes. Double Century on 99.94 is a podcast narrated, produced, and co-written by me, Jared Kimber. Abhishek Mukherjee is the main writer, and Nick McCorriston edits, mixes, and co-produces the show. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Du Plessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.